The book of Revelation, remember, it's the only book in the Bible where God says, I will bless you if you study it. And remember, God's told us that we need to love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. But one other thing, what would I leave out? With all our mind. And uh, God has built his truth, the Bible, into various levels. A non-believer can read the Bible with a hard heart and there are parts of it that they will understand because even a non-Christian can understand it. Satan himself can understand it. It's very simple. The spiritual truth is very obvious. Sort of like uh, animal cookies in a bucket on the bottom shelf. The baby can crawl over or roll over and knock it over and pick up the animal cookies off the floor and eat them. But then there are parts of the Bible, they're hidden. As it says in 1 Corinthians 1, that the natural man, the non-believer, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit living in his heart, cannot understand the things of the Spirit. He's natural-minded. But the spiritual man can discern all things. And So if you're a believer, God's spirit lives in you, you can understand the most difficult of spiritual concepts in the Bible. But God in in incredible wisdom, every period, every comma of the Bible, Jesus said it'd be easier for heaven and earth to pass away. It'd be easier for the entire universe to evaporate into non-existence than for one period or comma from God's word to have disappeared. That's how protected it is by God. And why is that? Because God has built his word in such a way that it is infinitely deep. And as deep as your soul, as mature as your soul, God can take you deeper and deeper still. So you can't say, oh, I've read the Bible 10 times. I know everything there is. You know, now I'm reading Encyclopedia Britannica to, you know, widen my knowledge. You know, no, this is a book of information, but it's also a spiritual book that will take you deeper. And you'll discover that there are things in it that you cannot understand at this moment in time because you're just not there spiritually yourself that God could yet reveal it to you. And then there are things that, yes, God could reveal it to you right now, but You've got to dig. You've got to work at it. If you have a good marriage, you know that's how you have a good marriage. You work at it. Your wife loves you, your husband loves you, but you, you just know you've got to just labor in, in, for the guy, bring in romance. I, you know, I've been married 30 years this coming June, and you know, to try to think up a date night, you know, it gets harder every year, you know. But my wife does not want to hear, you know, we're getting ready to go out Thursday night or something. Well, honey, what do you want to do? Oh, so I was just like, oh, do not say that. I don't want to go anywhere now, you know. I, I need to have a plan. That's what she wants, right? I thought through it. I made a plan. And, you know, she doesn't like them all, but I make a plan and we go with it and she appreciates it. But it takes a lot of work, again, to do the little things, to do work clean the house, do the dishes, whatever it is. In the same way, for us to love God, it takes work. And it's meant to be that way. So God has put some things in the Bible at first look, it looks like a contradiction, and he built it that way on purpose. Because you're like, oh my goodness, there's a contradiction here in the Bible. And then as you read and study through it, oh, there's no contradiction at all. But I think God built it that way because I think there are hard-hearted people, as First John says, there's people amongst us, but yet they went out from us to show that they were never really of us. I think there's people that have come into Christianity. They have changed some socially because they're around nice people, and nice people are contagious. You're around a bunch of grumpy people, you get grumpy yourself. You're around a bunch of ungrumpy people, well, you become a delightful person. And so they have changed outwardly in some ways. 
but yet the surrender of their heart and the Holy Spirit coming into their heart never happened, but yet they can appear to be with us for a long time and their doubting heart is growing and growing and all of a sudden they really start reading the Bible and they see this supposed contradiction and immediately their unbelieving heart just seizes them. Ah, oh, the Bible's all a big mistake. I think God's built stuff like that into the Bible to weed out the non-believer who's trying to pretend to be a believer amongst us. I also think that um, it's to hide things from Satan, to hide things from the non-believer. And so to understand the book of Revelation, you have to know the other 65 books of the Bible. If not, you will interpret it horribly. Now, there is today, each year Christianity Today usually puts out a statistic and shows how many people that go to church every Sunday. That's how they call it because you know, a lot of people claim to be Christians, but then they say, okay, the Christians that go to church Sunday, they take that percent, which is a lot smaller of a percent than people who say they're Christians, and they ask that group, how many of you have read the entire Bible? And it, it is incredibly small, small percent of those people who go to church every Sunday. And then they'll ask the people who have read the entire Bible in their lifetime, have you read the entire Bible in the last year, last 12 months? And it is such a small number that it's shocking that you realize in America that you've got a couple of thousand people that claim to have read the Bible in, in the last year. You're just never really gonna come to understand the deep things of God and definitely passages like we're getting ready to go into in chapter 12, 13, and 14 with such uh, attempt of knowing the Bible. A great verse is 2 Timothy 2.15, I quote it often, that we must all work in the word of God, rightly dividing every word of truth. In other words, not just the chapter or the paragraph or even a sentence, but down to the word, parsing the word out. That we can rightly divide the word of truth that we would not be ashamed. And so we, we see Satan, how he right in the beginning, misquotes the word of God to Eve and completely twists things around to harden her heart against God. He misquotes it, she agrees with him, and then she misquotes God's word. And between the two of them, misquoting what God really said, her heart gets hardened and she justifies her disobedience. We see to Jesus... Satan quotes the scripture to Jesus. He quotes it accurately, but completely out of context, twisting it to make it look like Jesus should do something that he should not do. As a matter of fact, the opposite is the, is the case. Jesus come back, and each time he quotes the scripture, he doesn't have a conversation with Satan. He just simply quotes the scripture accurately to Satan, the Bible is that two-edged sword, right? It is the, the word of the Spirit. It is our offensive weapon. And on the fourth time he quotes the scripture, Satan leaves him for a more opportune time. So the scripture, knowing what it means in context, also quoting it accurately is the most powerful weapon on the planet. Our weapons are not carnal, the Bible says, or of this earth, but they're spiritual, pulling down strongholds of Satan. Isn't that radical? That we can rip down over Chula Vista the demonic strongholds of Satan, we can rip them down. Just as Satan overcame, or just as Jesus overcame Satan in the, in the wilderness through the word of God, so can we. And so, 
in Revelation 12, 13, and 14, these three chapters are probably the most familiar pieces of information you know about the book of Revelation. So we're going to be seeing the Mark 666 and so forth, and you're going to go, oh, yeah, yeah, I got these. But again, we need to look at them at the big picture of context. So really, we should take the time to read all three of these chapters uh, at one time. Uh, But again, uh, time's just going to run out, so we're not going to do that. But we do need to remember, you cannot understand the text until you understand the context, right? You know, you, you, you can find the verse that says there is no God. I, I've had people tell me, well, yes, I believe the Bible. The Bible says there's no God. And they all quote that verse to you. Well, go back and look at it, the context. <laughs> it's not God. It's not somebody who loves God saying that. We gotta remember the Bible accurately quotes people even sometimes when they're lying. And it doesn't correct it saying, now God disagrees with that lie or God doesn't like lying. It's just, he quotes it accurately. And so again, it's the, it's the unbeliever who says in his heart, there's, there's no God. It's not God saying there's no God. And so again, if, if you, you gotta look at the context. So right here in chapter 12, Uh, Remember, we just covered last chapter some radical stuff. We saw 42 months. We saw 1,260 days. Both of this representing three and a half years. The tribulation period is seven years. This was what was going on in the first three and a half year period. Now as we come to chapter 12, it's gonna begin telling us about stuff that's gonna be happening in the next three and a half year period. And um, these two witnesses, remember, were there and confronting the world with their sin and they were able to bring pestilence and well, ba- the basic things that Moses and Aaron were able to bring to Pharaoh, they were able to bring to the whole planet Earth. And they were indestructible. Anybody tried to hurt them, they could bring fire to their mouth and kill them until God said, okay, your time's up. And then Satan was able to kill them. But then after three days, they rose again. Uh, God raised them from the dead and they, came, they went up into heaven. But now we, we have again um, told to us in a, in a way if you use all the rest of the Bible to, if you would, decipher the code or just simply look at the words. And here's a, here's a real key. It's called the first mention. So if you see something that's questionable, going, I'm not sure what that means, you ask yourself, where in the Bible is the first time that particular word or phrase or concept is used? And it's in any work of literature, that's the way you use it. I mean, so if you were reading uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle on Sherlock Holmes and there was some unique little phrase in the third book, And you're saying, well, what's that mean? You could go back and say, where's the first time that phrase was ever used? And you'll find, okay, this is a clear context when he used that, or maybe it's even explained the whole context of using that phrase, you know? Um, And so now you can come and take it and say, okay, now it's not as clear in this particular place, but that's what it means. So the the, the use of first mention. So look, look, for example, here in verse one. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now, right here, you can find people foolishly jumping in and, you know, uh, a popular one for most of my life was, it's the Catholic Church. Well, yeah, I've seen it. This, I've seen this very thing, a woman with the sun, and it was in the Catholic Church, and they use it as one of their uh, pictures on the wall, or they made a statue of it, and blah, 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 or the, coat, the Pope had a necklace with that on it, or whatever. Well, understand, guys, that the Catholic Church makes an image of everything it reads in the Bible, okay? So the fact that the Catholic Church made an image of this picture doesn't surprise me at all. 
Well, it would surprise me if they didn't make an image of that. Okay, so that doesn't mean, oh, this is it. This is the Catholic Church. The woman, that's the Catholic Church. Um, and then we start saying, oh, the moon, that's the Pope. And, oh, her feet, that's the money the Pope brings in. And, oh, there's a garland of 12 stars. That's the, you know, whatever. Um, Again, what do we need to do? We need to look in context and then look at first mention. So really, let's look at the first six verses here. So, this woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and her head a garland of 12 stars, then being with child. Okay, she's a pregnant woman now. She cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery and red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems on his head. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and ten horns and seven diadems on the heads. And before the woman, he was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So this lady's getting ready to give birth. As soon as the baby's born, he's trying to kill it. She bore a male child who is to rule, notice here, all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Some real key things here as you keep reading in context. This child is to rule all nations. This child's caught up to God and to God's throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days, three and a half years. So this woman is protected by God for three and a half years. So now we we begin to look in context and realize uh, this woman isn't some evil representation uh, of some evil, whatever it is, person, kingdom. Um, God is protecting her. God is with her. God's, uh, uh, the child is being elevated to the very throne of God. So let's go back here and, and look at this. All nations, here's some real keys. All nations, a rod of iron. First usage of this concept, for example, of the rod of iron. Because it's a a unique word that pops out. You say, "Let's, let's look in the Bible to see when it was used, if it was used before, and if so, is it a clear context? And what was that context that it was referring to? This would be Psalms 2. I love this psalm. In verse 7, it says, I will declare to thee, I will declare a decree, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have what? Begotten you. That's a unique word too, remember? Begotten, for God so loved the world, he gave us his only what? Begotten son. It's a unique word. We're not completely clear. The whole ramification is that begotten. But uh, then he says, ask of me and I will give you the what? Nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possessions. You shall break them with what? A rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like the potter's vessel. Well, Commentaries of Jews as well as Christian theologians, pretty much without controversy, says Psalms 2 is a messianic psalm referring to Jesus Christ. That it's the Father who says, this is my Son, I've begotten you. And Jesus then speaking to um, us in the millennial reign here, I'm not gonna go into the whole explanation of why, but he's possessors of it. We're going to rule and reign with him. But then he's saying, you, referring to Jesus and to us as well, will break them with the rod of iron. And this is the description we get in the millennial reign. God will allow no evil. So like taking a, a lead pipe and, or an iron pipe and you got a clay pot and you hit that clay pot, what's going to happen? <laughs> the, the, the rod's going to win, isn't it? That's what's going to happen to people's heads if they try to rape somebody or steal from somebody or murder somebody in the millennial reign. The Lord is going to know it, 
We are in our brand new bodies with the mind of the Lord. And God is not going to allow any evil on the planet, even for a fraction of a second. So also in Revelation 19, as we move forward, we're going to see again this phrase, the rod of iron, again, it's without controversy referring to the Messiah. Look at Revelation 19, verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a what? Rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of his wrath of almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, what? King of kings and Lord of lords. There's only one, only one person that that title applies to and that's Jesus. Now, the concept of the woman um, throughout the scripture, um, Israel is referred to as a woman over and over again in the Old Testament. Sometimes she's an adulterous woman and God's her husband and she's uh, adulterous to him. Uh, all kinds of different ways the, the term the woman is used of Israel, good and bad. But let me just quote you several places uh, in Isaiah 54, verse 1 through 6, Isaiah 66, verse 7, Jeremiah 3, verse 20, Ezekiel 16, verse 8 through 14, and Hosea chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. And so here we have a, again, going back and, and looking at this, um, this woman. I believe is referring to Israel. We have, uh, again, the idea of this woman Israel being, um, again, the sun and the moon. Is there another place? Again, the first mention of a person being a sun and moon is found uh, in, in Genesis chapter 37. And this is where Joseph, remember the guy with the coat of many colors? He has a dream in which he is going to be over his mom and dad and all his 11 brothers. And the interpretation of that dream is God's going to raise him up in authority over all of them. Of course, his brothers didn't appreciate that, end up trying to kill him. But in Genesis 37, verse 9, it says this, 311. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I've dreamed another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bow down to me. So it is told to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is the dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So in this case, uh, we see again this poetic expression of the sun and the moon uh, referring to uh, mom and dad in this case, uh, but to mom and dad, Israel. <laughs> Remember Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob. So uh, these indeed are the very expression of the nation of Israel and these two people. And so going back now, looking at verse one. So this great sign, by the way, this is the first of seven signs that we're gonna see. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Again, 12 tribes of Israel. So I believe the woman here is representing Israel. <clears throat> and then, as we move on, we see in verse two that this woman is with child and she cried out in labor and gave birth. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a clear messianic verse again. For unto us, what? A child is born. <laughs> unto us, a son is given. And the government will rush upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is a clear description of God coming in human flesh 
as the Messiah. Romans 9, 5 says, from whom the Christ has come according to the flesh. <clears throat> and in verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Now, I'll just mention here, as we go through uh, chapter 12, 13, and 14, sort of a, a group of chapters together, that we are going to be looking at much of the book of Daniel, because much of this is a quote from the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, it ex- explains what these things are. So it doesn't re-explain it to us in the book of Revelation. And so again, somebody who has studied the book of Daniel will read much of these chapters we're going to read and know exactly what it's about and know exactly why it didn't explain it there because it explained it so clearly in the book of Daniel. Again, I'm so thankful God didn't give us some Bible that would, you know, even in its smallest print would weigh 50 pounds and, you know, if we lived to be 300 years old, we could read the whole thing once before we die. Um, You know, God's given us the scripture in such a way and the best commentary on the Bible is what? The Bible. And so this dragon... In verse 9, it tells us, as again, context is so important. In Revelation 12, 9, it says, The great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called who? The devil, Satan, who deceives the whole world. So as you read on in context again, uh, there's little controversy. In Revelation 20, verse 2, it says again, the dragon, the serpent of old, who is called the devil, Satan. He has seven heads and ten horns. You say, wow, that would just be anybody's guess what that means. Not at all. Because as we are going to study in Daniel chapter 7, we're going to discover that there are four world ruling empires that were described that would be upon the face of this earth. And the fourth world ruling empire would be Rome. But he tells us in Daniel that each of the kingdoms before them were conquered, destroyed, the next kingdom was raised up. But in the Roman Empire, it never was conquered. It just sort of, through its own perversion and its own uh, spreading itself out and the lack of leadership and a lot of things, it just sort of disbanded. It sort of just faded away. And the Bible tells us that it's going to fade back into existence. But when it comes back into existence, and it actually tells us twice in Daniel, in chapter 2 and chapter 7, that it'll come back into 10 kingdoms. Now, this is interesting because you have the Roman Empire that lasted several hundred years, and the last of the Roman Empire was actually in Turkey. Uh, its, head, its capital was Istanbul, Turkey. And uh, that's the eastern end of the branch of the Roman Empire. So we have to look today and, and ask ourselves, because a lot of Europe can link together. We don't have to say each nation of Europe would be one kingdom, because that would make a lot. It would be well over 10. But somehow, the ancient Roman Empire, I think the western part, of, of Europe and the eastern part in Turkey today, it's all going to be represented. It's going to be in ten, na- 10 kingdoms. Now, one of those kingdoms, it says, is going to raise up. It's going to speak perverse things. It's going to take out three kingdoms, bringing it down to a smaller number than 10. But that one who takes those other kingdoms out, he is going to be the Antichrist. And this is why it tells us seven heads, ten horns. And in Daniel, it goes into detail explaining this, that this is a description of the Antichrist, that Satan is possessing this Antichrist. And again, remember, the whole thing about the Antichrist is Satan envy of of Jesus. Jesus actually came into a virgin. And he was 100% God and 100% man. Satan cannot do that. He cannot create. 
He's not creative. That's why he is a copycat. Creativity is a part of the nature of God and Satan is just a, an angel that has fallen. He's not man. He's not made in the image of God as we are. And so the best he can do as we see in the scriptures where demons possess people. The best we can understand are demons are simply fallen angels. And they possess people, but we see the possession, don't we? People are not, their, their will is completely quenched out. When God's Holy Spirit comes into us, our will is 100% intact. But yet, when a demon comes in, he completely controls the will of that person and does whatever he wants, whether it's throwing them into a fire and killing them or drowning them or making them do uh, hideous things. And so this dragon is the person who is the Antichrist possessed by the devil and he's raising himself up uh, to be the great emperor of the world um, and eventually claiming himself to be God. And in verse four, and his tep, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And so um, stars are often a euphemism for angels. For example, in, in Job, we have in verse 38, it says, um, were you, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? This is Job 38, verse four through seven. Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who has stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations fashioned? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted with, for joy. So two words, uh, the morning stars and the sons of God referring to angels. We also see Satan being referred to. In, in Isaiah 14, verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer. Now the New King James says, son of the morning. But in the Hebrew, that word is star. And if you look, for example, in the NIV, it translates it star. Star of the morning or the morning star. How you are cut down to the ground, you have weakened the nations. And then in Revelation 9, verse 1, it says, The fifth angel shouted, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, to whom was given the key to the bottomless pit. Description of Satan. And... Um, so even Satan is called a star. And so here in this scripture, it appears that we are now getting a number of how many angels sided with Lucifer, we know as Satan, the devil, when there was the battle in heaven. And so the best we can understand is that Satan, as we know in, in, in Isaiah 14, said in his heart, I should be lifted up. I should be as the most high God. And there was a battle that went on and it's crazy to imagine, but one third of the angels sided with Satan and fought with, against God and against the two thirds of the angels that sided with God uh, against Lucifer. And... Uh, Again, in, in our way of thinking, we have to have everything in this nice chronological, historical, uh, you know, sequence of events. But in the Eastern mind, not so. So he's referring here to an event that happened uh, before, I think, planet Earth was beginning to get built, when there was this heavenly battle that went on. And then we have the description of when Jesus was born on the earth and how Satan did everything he could to try to kill uh, Jesus. Remember how Herod, um, when he heard the, the Magi who, who said, oh, we're going to Bethlehem. That's where the Messiah is to be born. And, and Herod said, well, once you find him, let me know. And then he realized they left him without telling him. And Satan, or Herod, again, being puppeted by Satan, went in and killed there in Bethlehem all the, the two-year-old children and below because he didn't want to didn't know how old the baby would be and just wanted to make sure he erred on the side of wiping them all out. In John chapter eight, verse 44, 
It says, you are your, of your father, the devil. Jesus talking to the religious Pharisees. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. In John chapter 10, verse 10, a thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and destroy. And this is Satan. He hates what God chooses and what God loves. And when God chose Abraham to be his people forever, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you and in you, I'm gonna bless all the nations of the earth through your seed all the entire planet earth is gonna be blessed through that seed, referring to Jesus the Messiah. In Genesis chapter 12, he says this. Since that time, Pharaoh, what did, it, what did they, he order for all the baby boys who were born to be killed, right? We see the time of Esther where Haman tried to get King Artaxerxes to wipe out all the Jews worldwide at that time. The Syrians did the same thing. The Babylonians did the same thing. The Romans did the same thing. The Greek Empire uh, through Seleucid and Antioch of Epiphanes, as a story in Daniel, tried to do that. England, uh, to this day, is very anti-Semitic. And if you go back even into the early 1900s, uh, well, even after... uh, the war when they were trying to get out of Europe after the Holocaust and they were trying to come in to Tel Aviv. England put up barricades and literally hundreds of thousands of Jews died on ships trying to get to Tel Aviv. Many of them in starvation mode just jumped overboard with their babies and drowned and thousands of bodies, tens of thousands of bodies would worship on the shore shore of the Mediterranean. Uh, But England did horrible things to the Jews. And if you look in history, when the fall of the English empire began to take a horrible crash, it was then. And I'd like to also point out, in 1948, we were the first nation that declared Israel as a nation. And if you look from 1948 forward, our nation has been blessed like no other nation on the planet has ever been blessed. And I believe it goes back to where God said in Genesis 12 to Abraham, to those who bless you and your descendants will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. And it's interesting that as our nation has become more and more a post-Christian nation, and the status of our government is less and less anti-Israel, so the blessings of our nation are also dissipating. And uh, when uh, our current administration was trying to say that he was pro-Israel, I I just couldn't believe that the Jews of America believed it. Everything he had ever did was to try to stand against Israel. And to this day, we've never had an administration who is trying to harm Israel and trying to break its ties and its promises that we have with Israel more than the current administration. And if you want to see an immediately blessing back to our nation, vote in an administration that will be pro-Israel. There's a promise of God. And Benjamin Franklin said something very interesting. There was a time after George Whitfield that he actually gave his life to the Lord and then he later recanted and became an agnostic again, but... During that time, he said, seeing that no sparrow can fall to the sky without God's noticing it, surely there is no nation that has been the greatest nation of all could have arisen to power without God's aid. And since nations, unlike people, cannot die and go to heaven and have an eternal reward, It's incumbent upon God to bless that nation at that generation. It wouldn't be right for a generation that's been obedient to God not to have the blessings of God 
and it wouldn't be right for a generation to be cursed uh, by a, a, a generation before it. And so, again, I think if we supported Israel like we have in the past, we would see an immediate uh, blessing of God in that as well. Um, I love those t-shirts, and I had one for years that uh, you can buy when we go to Israel. It says, uh, America, don't worry. Israel's behind you. And uh, they have no idea. It's far truer than they can believe. And of course, in the recent history, Germany and the Holocaust, um, and then Arabs today. It's just amazing how so many parts of the world, they hate this country and Israel. (laughs) And anybody that supports Israel, they hate them too now. So you see throughout the Arab world, well, we hate Israel. In the United States, you like Israel, so we hate you too. Anybody else like Israel? Tonga? Okay, we hate you too. There's certain nations that have declared to be friends of Israel and they'll hate you and they'll burn your flag and declare that they will exterminate you like they're gonna exterminate Israel. And uh, when I saw the United States flag being burnt next to the Israeli flag, it makes me proud (laughs) that we have been linked with God's children. Um that nation that God has said that he or his children forever. Well, boy, I could go off on that for a while longer and I won't because I already did too long there. But uh, moving forward in verse five. Now she bore a male child, Israel, (laughs) giving birth to a child who was to rule all nations. How? With a rod of iron. As you look at it now, this is referring to the Christ who one day in the millennial reign will rule all nations with the rod of iron, and we also. And her child, Israel's child, Jesus the Messiah, was caught up to God and his throne. So again, we know that to be true. Going back in the book of Acts, he's ascending into heaven, and all the church, all 500 of them are looking at him, and, and uh, the angel's saying, what are you looking to heaven for? And they, he said, the way he left is the way he's gonna come back. He ascended from the Mount of Olives, and we're gonna learn in the book of Revelation, he's gonna descend, of course, with us, the church, all riding on horses, flying through the sky, pretty cool. And he's gonna land on the Mount of Olives. And in verse six, now the woman fled into the wilderness when she has a place prepared by God that she should feed, they, they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, I'm just gonna simply tell you something and then I'm gonna show you some scriptures on this. In the three and a half year period, and this is actually as we go on in the chapters, uh, chapter 13 and 14, we're gonna have more information on this. But in the three and a half year period, the temple's gonna be rebuilt. We talked about that a little bit last week. Instead of the Antichrist coming to inaugurate the building, he goes into the Holy of Holies, sets himself on the Ark of the Covenant, proclaims himself to be God, at that moment, the Bible tells us that the Jews worldwide, their eyes are gonna be opened. It says they're gonna look on him whom they pierced. They're gonna realize Jesus is the Messiah. They rejected him all the time. These two witnesses, the 144,000, 12,000 from every tribe, a mighty prophets and evangelists, all these people that are flooding the world, all these Jews that are flooding the world, that, you know, it's interesting now, Israel's the front page news has been pretty much since 1948 around the world. You know, I, I've been throughout Europe, I've been in Africa, you get a newspaper, you, you know, you got this little tiny bit of space, you know, Israel, this country uh, about the size of Southern California, about the size of Rhode Island, <laughs> this little tiny bit of ground pretty much gets front page news anywhere in the world. You know, one reason I think is to just constantly tell us, guys, one of the prophecies that we would know when the Lord's coming back is Israel would become a nation again. An impossible feat. Theologians for years, good, good, godly, godly conservative guys said, can't happen. God didn't mean that. It's gotta mean something else. <laughs> and then in 1948, when they became a nation again, it's like, how can this happen? And David Ben-Gurion resurrected the Hebrew language that hadn't been spoken in 2,000 years. And then in 1967, they took Jerusalem as their capital. 
It's, it's, just, it's just like pinch yourself. This has really happened, guys. Just as God said from the four corners of the world. And you know what you have in Israel today? You've got almost every nationality in the world represented there, and they're Jews. You've got all your European Jews. You've got your, uh, all your Hispanic-looking uh, uh, Jews. And you've got your black, I mean, people are Ethiopian Jews. It's amazing. God said from the four corners of the world the Jews would be scattered. That's what happened. And from the four corners of the world they'd be brought together again. That's what's happened. It's it's just an amazing thing. And I think God puts that on the front page of every newspaper in your little 26 minutes of a half an hour program of news. Israel is mentioned. It's just to sort of, hey, Christians, in case you missed it, Israel's a nation. You're in the last moments of the last days before my coming. Wake up. And um, so here we, we see that in that three and a half year period, when their eyes are open, they're gonna reject the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is gonna get furious and he's gonna begin trying to do, as we're gonna see in Daniel, exterminate the Jews like Antioch of Epiphanes did when he was rejected. And what's gonna happen is God is preparing a place in the wilderness. We're gonna discover that place is right next door in the country today called Joe, uh, Jordan. And Jordan today is, is the only of the Arab nation that works with Israel and has uh, business workings with Israel, dealing with Israel. Um, Jews can actually go over into Jordan without their life being threatened and vice versa. It's an interesting thing. We, one of our elders here in our church is Jordanian. It's neat to, uh, to see his heart for Israel now. But um, there's actually a, a part that used to be Edom from the ancient people of Esau, the Edomites and Petra, the rock city of Petra, that they're gonna be there and they're gonna be protected and fed by God for three and a half years, the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Where do we get this from? In Isaiah chapter 16, verse one. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from, here it is, Selah into the wilderness, to the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be as a warning bird thrown out of the nest, a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. So shall the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day, hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcast dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at the end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are uh, consumed out of the land. Jordan makes up three different ancient peoples. The Ammonites and the Moabites, both of them were the daughters of Lot, who had children by their own dad Lot. And then the other were the Edomites, the children of Esau. And so today, they, they know that. If you talk to Jordanians, you're like, oh yeah, this is the ancient land of Ammon, this is the ancient land of Moab, this is the ancient land of Edom. And so the, the whole Jordanian nation is gonna open their arms to Israel. And God's gonna bless them for it, but also, God's gonna also protect them uh, from the Antichrist as well. And in Isaiah 26, verse 20 and 21, it says, come my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself as it were for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 41 He shall also enter the glorious land. This is the Antichrist trying to, will enter into the glorious land, Israel. And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. The three countries that make up Jordan today, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. Isaiah 42, verse 11 to 13. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices, the villages that Kedar inhabitants. Let the inhabitants of Selah, here it is again, it's called Petra today. Uh, they made uh, 
part of the Indiana Jones movie there, if you remember. We've been there with our tour groups when we go to Israel. We have an extension and, and go there. It's, a, it's an amazing place. Uh, so the villages of Kedar inhabitants, let the, mount, the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout at the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise to the coastlands. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. And then Zechariah chapter 13, verse eight and nine. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two thirds in it shall be cut off and die. So two thirds of the Jewish believers whose eyes are open to know the Antichrist uh, is the Antichrist and they, they had killed Jesus, the Messiah, and they look on him for salvation. They're gonna be killed by the Antichrist right there. And one third of them shall make it will be left in it. They're gonna make it to Petra and survive. I will bring one third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested and they will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say, this is my people and each one will say, the Lord is my God. And so uh, again, this is an interesting thing that we're gonna discover. There's more information on this thing as we're gonna read on. It goes on to say in verse seven now of Revelation 12, verse seven, and the war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. So in the heavenlies, there is this battle going on with these terrestrial beings. We see, we see one of these battles actually uh, revealed to us in the book of Daniel chapter 10. When Daniel was praying and, and he kept waiting for God's answer to prayer. And finally, in Daniel chapter 10, verse 12 to 13, then he, um, we're gonna discover it's Gabriel, the, the, the angel, said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, uh, your words were heard and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, so it appears that Satan, as it says in Ephesians 6, has principalities. So there are demons of Chula Vista. <laughs> and there's a spirit of those demons. If you've ever driven across country and maybe you can ride and in, drive into a place, almost when you cross the boundary line, you can sometimes just sense a spirit sometimes of, of, of murder or of just darkness of various times of greed. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It's one of the gifts of the Spirit is to be able to discern the gifts of the Spirit. And, and these are the kingdoms of Persia, which would be the next world ruling empire. So these demonic hosts over the principalities of Persia, which is Iran today, they withstood me 21 days. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, Michael the archangel, came to help me. For I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. So, there's this battle going on. The angels of God are fighting against the demonic angels sided with Lucifer, interesting. And probably trying to bring in this kingdom of Persia quicker than God was allowing it. And there was this battle going on. And finally, Michael came and released Gabriel who had had a message 21 days earlier trying to get to Daniel, but couldn't get there. And finally, Michael was dispatched, started fighting off those de- demons and Gabriel took off and made it down to Daniel and said, man, I would have been here 21 days earlier, but I got caught in this battle and I couldn't get away and finally I got away I got to hurry back and go fight but here's the information real quick we also see later in Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 at that time Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was or since there was a nation even to this time referring to the tribulation period and at that time your people shall be delivered And so, in verse eight, moving on, Revelation chapter 12, verse eight. But they did not prevail, nor was the place found for them in heaven any longer. So these demonic angels fighting against the archangels of God did not prevail. But interesting enough, he says, now there is no longer a place for them in the heavens. Remember, it's hard for us to imagine 
because we don't under we can't really picture something without matter, without space, as we understand things. So it's hard to imagine, you know, Satan messing with somebody here in America and then the next second in China. And then in the next second, he's in the presence of God. Remember the story there in Job where it says when all the, all the angels came to give an report to God that Satan also came and he started having a conversation with God about Job. And you're like, how can Satan go to heaven? How can Satan come to the throne of God? It just sort of blows our mind. Well, that continued all the way until this point. In chapter 12, verse 8, if you would, all of the angels' wings were clipped. (laughs) So all of these demonic beings have now been limited in their ability to move in the heavenlies as they had before. In the tribulation period, Uh, Now sometime in that second three and a half year period, the demons no longer have the power that they had had to war uh, against the believers on planet earth. In Revelation 12 verse nine now, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So they're all now earthbound. Uh, and their abilities to war are limited. And in verse 10, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and our power and his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. So now they declare it and they say, there is no longer the ability for Satan to come before God and accuse the, uh, the, the brethren as he did. Remember the story of Job. Satan came. Oh, Job's not a real believer. Job's not really that godly of a guy. You, you take away his money, he'll curse you. You take away his kids, he'll curse you. You take away his health, he'll curse you. He was an accuser. But Job was an amazing godly man. He did not lose his faith even in the midst of trials that we can hardly imagine how bad those trials were. We have an interesting picture in in Zechariah chapter three. And this is a story where he gets this heavenly picture. And at this time, the high priest of Israel was named Joshua. And interesting, Satan has the power to come and speak against the high priest as an evil guy. And God listens to him. And in Zechariah chapter three, it says, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. As you read this chapter, it's a great chapter. I encourage you to read it tonight, Zechariah 3. Satan begins to point out, well, let me tell you about this sin of Zechariah. It was true. And what about this sin? And hey, look at his priestly garment. It's dirty. And of course, if you read, he's to be put to death if that happens. And it's torn. He's to be put to death. And his priestly hat, it's gone. All these things were a death penalty for the high priest. And he says, therefore, since you're a just God, I demand that you put him to death. And in this dream, as Satan is accusing him, God completely cleanses Joshua's garments and completely fixes them. And then he puts a new priestly hat back on his head. And then God says back to Satan, he looks great to me. And that's the end of that story. And it's a wonderful New Testament picture of grace, isn't it? And as we come into the New Testament, we are the high priest of God, Peter tells us. We are the royal priesthood. And Satan is accusing us before God day and night, but who is now our intercessor, whoever lives, it says in Hebrews, to make intercessions for us? It's Jesus Christ. And he is there with his scars, and he is there with his blood, 
saying they have already been forgiven. Romans 8, verse 33 and 34 makes this plain. Who will bring charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who always intercedes for us. Who is the one that brings a charge against God's elect? Satan. Sometimes ourself. Sometimes other people that don't like us or get mad at us for whatever reason that would like to see us condemned. God's the one who justifies us. So who is the one who condemns? It's Christ who's died, who raised again from the dead. It's the right hand of God who's interceding for us. No condemner, Satan or man or even yourself we often condemn ourselves, don't we? No condemnation. It tells us at the beginning of Romans 8, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The end of Romans 8 says, or not really complete end, it says it doesn't matter who the condemner is. It won't stand because of the work of Christ. Well, we're gonna end in verse 11. I'm gonna read it and we'll pick up there next week. And they overcame him. Satan, by what? The blood of the lamb and by what else? The word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. They were willing to die for Christ. What a beautiful thing, man. We are more than conquerors because of his love for us. uh, That's the end of Romans 8. (laughs) Neither height nor depth nor principality, there it is, Satan, the demonic angels, principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come will separate us from the love of Christ. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we work at this line upon line, precept upon precept, we know the key to unlock this is so clear before us. And we thank you. And we know that this information is so vitally important. You've added a blessing if we will work on this stuff and study it out. And we realize it is tough stuff that we've really do gotta take that 2 Timothy 2.15 to heart to study to show ourselves workmen unto God, rightly dividing the word of truth that we would not be ashamed. And how many men before us have been ashamed trying to make the Roman Catholic Church here in Revelation 12, when it's uh, clearly the, the, the Antichrist and his kingdom, the revived Roman Empire, trying to make uh, Israel <laughs> into something evil. Just, again, not taking seriously all the word of God. You said that we would be able to not be lacking in any good work if we use all the scripture that's been God-breathed. Lord, I ask that this group here tonight would appear (laughs) in the Christian magazine as those who have studied your word all the way through at least once a year, if not three or four times a year. Please, God, let us hide your word deep in our heart that we would not sin against you. And we know in these last days that the doctrines of the demons are gonna cause many to depart from the faith, not us, Lord. Let us have this sharp two-edged sword of the scriptures that we are to have deep in our hearts and at the tip of our tongues in these last days that we would not be deceived by any doctrines of demons. You said these last days would be the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, and so we're there. And how many people are gonna be left behind because they believe the doctrine of Satan about homosexuality. You said the days would be as Noah, a a generation full of violence. You aggrieved that you ever made man. Their hearts were evil continually. Lord, let it not be with us. We're in a world that's just soaked in sexuality, that is just entertained by things that are more and more violent. Let it not be so with us, God. Let us be peacemakers and be called sons of God. Let whatever is lovely and true and pure and worthy of praise, let these be the things that we put our mind upon. 
Let us put our eyes upon you, Jesus, who is at the right hand of your Father, that we would be ready, continually purified for that day of the rapture. Let us all abide in you as dear children, that none of us would shrink away in shame at your appearing, as 1 John 2, 28 says. Let us be a people who are one of the five virgins who have oil in our lamps, constantly filling it up and not letting that oil run dry and come knocking at the door later and not being let in. We know that those left behind, it's gonna be a snare on them and upon all those who left behind on the whole earth. Please, Lord, let us now be a purified Christian running to win the race for your glory and your honor in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you. You have a wonderful evening. And uh, be praying about uh, who you can invite to come and hear the gospel here at Calvary Chapel over the next few weeks. Bye-bye.